James chapter 2 is where we're going to continue our study tonight. We're learning, in this study, Activate, we're learning to put our faith into action. We're learning to activate our faith. That is a difficulty and a weakness for every believer in some sense. To appreciate truth, but to struggle to apply the truth. We, we are naturally prone to do that. To appreciate, but not apply. To agree with something, but not to change in accordance with that truth. As we started to pursue this awareness last week, we, we saw that truth revealed. That appreciation without application is self-deception. And that, that comes so naturally for, for every believer to appreciate without applying. And in James chapter 1, verse 22, we saw that to do that, to appreciate truth without applying truth, is to deceive yourself. It's to be like a man who looks in a mirror and sees all the things that he needs to change about himself. But as soon as he steps away from the mirror, he forgets what he looks like. That's what it's like to be a hearer of the word, to, to hear, to see where I need to change, but then not to change, not to be a doer of the word, not to, not to make myself look better in accordance with what I saw in the mirror. Biblically, not to become more like Christ. It's hypocrisy. It's to be a hearer without a doer. It's to be an appreciator, but not an applier. And what we saw last week is that to find ourselves in that position actually to deceive ourselves. Not only are we lying to ourselves, but we're believing that lie. I hope and I pray last week that, that none of us would hear that message and think, yeah, but does that really matter? Because in James chapter 2, how we closed, the last slide that we closed with last week was, was that faith without works is dead. That's why that truth is so important. That's, that's why it matters so much that to be an appreciator, but not to be someone who applies what we have appreciated, is self-deception. Because faith without works is dead. It's dead faith. It's not real faith. It, it couldn't be more important. Because to have a dead faith is to not be a Christian. And so what's, what's pointed out for us is not that if you're an appreciator, but someone who doesn't apply, that you need to grow. What James says is that you're dead. You're dead if you're not applying the truth. Well, tonight we're going to continue that argument. James continues that argument into chapter 2. And this is going to be part 2 for us in, in what we've already seen in this study. We're going to title this Faith Works, same as last week, Faith Works, Part 2. In the second chapter of James, he is continuing the exact same argument that appreciation without application is self-deception. And, and he makes that significant because of the claim that faith without works is dead. So our study tonight, as we look at this, this second part of the truth, that faith works. Faith is not just this abstract thing. Faith works. Tonight, what this is going to revolve around is the following truth that is drawn from James chapter 2. Saving faith is always accompanied by supporting works. 
Saving faith is always accompanied by supporting works. The terminology in that statement is really important, and I I underline those words that I especially want to stand out to you. Saving faith is always accompanied by supporting works. That's shown in James chapter 2, verse 14, when James writes, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? And the way that James asks that question, the type of terminology he uses, means that the answer to that question is no. What use is it, brethren, if someone has faith but has no works? Can he be saved with that faith? No is the answer. Because saving faith is always accompanied by supporting works. Now, I want us to be clear on this. Those terms, saving and supporting, are so fundamental. We are saved by faith alone. We're not saved. By our works. We are saved by faith alone. Okay? I want us to understand. I'm going to throw this up here because we can't miss this. If we miss this, we're, we've left the gospel. We are saved by faith, not works. Saving works do not exist. There's no such thing as works that save you. That is the message of the gospel. That's the message of the gospel of John that we studied for so long. Believe that Jesus is the Christ. You're saved through belief. You're saved through faith. It is faith alone that saves. Works do not save us. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 say, By grace you have been saved. That's that's that supporting passage down there. By grace you have been saved. Not of works. Not of works. So so that no one could ever boast. Paul says in Ephesians 2. We're saved by grace, not works. Because if we were saved by works, we could boast in our works. But there's nothing for us to boast in. Because we're not saved by works. We're saved by faith. Don't miss that tonight. Because where James is going to go is at first glance going to seem like a different message than that. But as we break down that fundamental statement that we started with, saving faith is always accompanied by supporting works, we'll see that this statement holds true. We're saved by faith, not works. Saving works do not exist. From the beginning, saving faith has always been accompanied by supporting works. That statement, saving faith, is always accompanied by supporting works. What that means is that we're saved by faith alone. Works don't save us. But saving faith always has works that support that saving faith. In other words, the works in someone's life, they point towards a saving faith. The works in someone's life testify towards someone being being a believer. They testify towards someone having saving faith. Saving faith always has works in that person's life that shout, that proclaim, that testify to the world. That person is a believer. That message is so important to James. He he, he kicked it off in chapter 1 when he's talking about appreciating without applying. 
That's, that's someone that would claim faith. They appreciate the truth, but they're not applying it. There's no works to go with it. And this, this, he's, he's, this is what he's got, this, this, this letter revolves around. is is driving home this message. Saving faith is always accompanied by supporting works. See, James is writing to people who claim the faith, but their lives have not been changed in accordance with the gospel. They look no different than the world. And so James is writing when he's saying, don't you get it? If you claim salvation, if you claim saving faith, there must be works that are in your life that point to that. That's the proof. That's what testifies to having a saving faith is supporting works. Those works don't save you. They show that you're saved. That is James' central message. Saving faith is always accompanied by supporting works. He's going to spend several verses arguing that point. And that's how we're going to structure this tonight. The way we're going to see this laid out is three arguments proving that faith without works is dead. Three arguments proving that faith without works is dead. Okay, so James is just going to, he set that truth up in verse 14. Verse 14 of chapter 2, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? What use does it have? It's useless. That faith cannot save him. To prove that point, he begins with his first argument. His first argument is an illustrative argument. An illustrative argument. Okay, now tonight, these first points, they're not going to tell you anything. They're just going to kind of set up everything that's going to follow. So if you're taking notes, we've got a lot of notes to work through tonight because an illustrative argument is not, that's not an argument, right? Like if I'm arguing for something, I have a point that I want to drive home and they're like, how do you prove your point? And I say, an illustrative argument. That doesn't drive my point home at all, right? We're going to look into what that illustrative argument is, okay? So be ready for that. That's not enough information to help you. An illustrative argument is where James goes and he begins that in verse 15. Look at verse 15. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. Being by itself. James, in these three verses, gives his readers a hypothetical scenario. He, he, he starts this with an if. In other words, if, perchance, this were to happen, it's an illustration, it's hypothetical, but that illustration is going to drive home his greater point that saving faith is always accompanied by supporting works. So he starts describing this hypothetical scenario where someone needs warmth and food. It's cold outside, they have nowhere to go, and they're hungry and have no food. So he says, let's set up this imaginary scene where someone is in this position and they come to you. They come to you and make their needs known. I need warmth and I need food. And you look at this poor soul and you say, oh... Be warm. Be filled. And go in peace. 
That, that's a, those are the exact words in this scenario. And one of you says to them, verse 16, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled. Now, what he's talking about there is that someone came, notice the first word that comes out of this person's mouth, go. Like, don't stay and be warm and be filled. Go and be warmed and be filled. What this person does is they reject the person who needs warmth and the person that needs food. They reject them. They tell them to leave. But they tell them to leave with an encouraging message to someone who needs to be warmed and be filled. Be warmed and be filled. Okay, this is like the equivalent of, of if, if one of you came into my office and you said, Adam, I'm just really struggling. I need, to, I need some encouragement. I took out a little notepad and I wrote the word encouragement and I gave it to you and I sent you out the door. Did I give you some encouragement? Yes, but no, right? Like you don't walk away like, man, I feel so much better. I felt lousy, but now I have some encouragement. Like you're empty. That's the exact scenario. Someone's like, I need food and I need warmth. And they're like, oh, be filled. Feel full and feel warm and leave. <laughs> That's the scenario. And like it's James. James is a funny guy. Like we're going to see all through here. This dude is dripping with sarcasm, which is fun. James is the half brother of Jesus. And I'm just picturing like this super sarcastic dude growing up with God and, and how unique of a relationship that must have been. J- James here draws this ridiculous scenario. It, it makes no sense. It's just an illustration that, that seems so strange. But let me explain to you what this illustration is supposed to reveal. In James' illustration, the external actions exposed the internal desires. In James' illustration, the external actions exposed the internal desires. See, in the illustration that James gave, there was a person... He says, it's one of you. It's one of you. Someone claiming faith. Someone who believes. Someone who appreciates the truth. Someone who says, I have faith. It's one of you that the needy person comes up to. And it's one of you that sends them away. Now, you are claiming faith, but your actions actually suggest otherwise. You're claiming that you are someone who loves Jesus, who wants to be like Jesus, who has faith. But when the opportunity comes for you to express that faith, you send them away with expressing no faith at all. In doing so... Your internal desire, your internal claim for faith, that's an internal claim, right? I have faith. It's exposed. It's exposed as a lie. Because your external actions showed that you don't actually have faith. That's the illustration that James is pointing. If one of you claims faith, but when someone says, I need warmth and I need food, you send them away, you're a hypocrite. You've shown with your actions that what you claim isn't genuine. It's it's actually a very similar argument to, to the argument that Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 25. I want you to turn over there. The first book in the New Testament. Almost an identical illustration. I'm sure J- James may have been thinking of Jesus' statement when he says that in James 2. 
Matthew chapter 25. In this scene, I want to bring you up to speed because it's kind of long. We're just going to read a short part of it. It's a bit of an illustration. Jesus is, is looking at the judgment day when Jesus comes back. And we're told that he separates two kinds of people. He separates two kinds of people. One of those people... Look at verse, uh, verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes, that's Jesus, when he comes in his glory, Matthew 25, 31, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered. He will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So there's, there's two people. Look at verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, come, you who are blessed of the Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's the first group of people, and he he talks to them for a second. Now, jump down to verse 41. Then he, Jesus, will say to those on his left, depart from me. So, not the people on the right that he entered into heaven, the people on the left. Depart, you accursed ones, into the eternal fire that is hell, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. He sends the people on his left to hell, but I want you to look at why. Verse 42, Jesus says, for I was hungry. And you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then Jesus will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, You did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Jesus paints this picture in Matthew, you can turn back to James 2, in Matthew chapter 25, where there's a group of people that he says, you don't enter into heaven, You're, you're, you're going to hell, depart from me. And the reasoning he gives for it is that over the course of their life, hungry people came to them and they rejected them. Thirsty people came to them and they rejected them. Those who needed clothes and those who needed visited came and they were rejected. And they're like, Lord, we never did that to you. And he said, no, you didn't do it to me. Not directly. But whatever you've done to the least of your brethren, you do to me. Jesus says to these people, Whatever, however you've sinned against another man, you've sinned against God. You've sinned against God. Is Jesus saying in Matthew chapter 25 that, that the people who go to heaven are the people who give clothes to other people? Do all Salvation Army employees go to heaven? not what he's saying the way to get to heaven is not to give clothes to other people and food to other people no what jesus is saying in matthew 25 is that saving faith is always supported by works saving faith is always accompanied by supporting works that's a rule It's such a rule that you can say there will be no one in heaven whose faith was not accompanied by works. Saving faith is always accompanied by works that point to it. And so in the illustration that Jesus and James give, when someone comes and is hungry and asks you for food, Jesus says, if you reject them, 
you're showing that your faith isn't genuine. Remember, this is just an illustrative argument. This whole thing is not boiled down to, to taking care of people who need clothes. It's just an example. The, the, the point, I hope you're getting it, is that saving faith is always accompanied by supporting works. Well, supporting works could be anything in your life. But they're there. And they're testifying that your faith is real. To the extent that Jesus could look to someone and say, if, if you're not caring for others, if you're not loving for others, if, if you're not loving others, if you're not looking out and, and visiting and feeding, if you're, if you're not caring for the people around you, you're not a child of mine. Because those actions are supporting works to a saving faith. And saving faith is always accompanied by supporting works. Let me say this another way. Saving faith is never invisible. Saving faith is never invisible. Faith is an internal thing. It's belief. It happens in our heart. It happens in our soul. It's trust. It's easy then for us to make the argument, yeah, I have faith. Obviously you can't see it. It's faith. James and Jesus reply to that and say saving faith is never invisible. Because saving faith is always accompanied by supporting works and you can see one's works. You can see the evidence of that saving faith in their life. You can see faith. You know why? Because you can see generosity. You can see love. You can see care. You can see giving and serving and sacrificing. Faith without works is dead. The first way that James illustrates that is with this illustrative argument. But he continues, he doesn't, though that is convincing in and of itself. There's nothing else needed. He gives another argument. That second argument is a logical argument. A logical argument. In verses 18 through 20, James delivers this logical argument showing that faith without works is dead. If you haven't turned there yet, go back to James chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. He says this, But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works. I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? And these verses, this is making this logical argument. James gives two supporting points. He gives two supporting points. And, and these don't necessarily build off of each other. They're kind of two sides of the same coin. As he starts to make more this logical approach, this, he kind of reasons more in this second point. He, he makes the argument that it just makes sense that saving faith is always accompanied by supporting works. And so he has two supporting points in, in driving this home. The first one is that you cannot show faith without works. You can't show faith 
without works. So he, he makes that point by drawing, it's kind of another hypothetical situation where, where someone may come up and make this statement in verse 18, but someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. All right, so there's, there's two people, one of them have faith and, and one of them has works. And then he calls the one who has just faith to show him his faith. Okay, we, we do this all the time. Someone makes a statement. I can do a backflip. Right? If I were to make that statement, I can do a backflip. You would follow up with what? Prove it. Show me. Right? I doubt you would be wise to doubt that I can do a backflip. Yeah, so the call to prove it is the call for me to give evidence to my claim. If I can't prove it, if I can't show it, then it reveals that my claim is false, right? You can't show faith without works because faith is invisible. If I say, show me your faith, you can't without works. It's not a visible thing. And so he makes the argument, go ahead, show me your faith without works. Try to figure out how you could possibly do that. That's exactly the call. Show me in verse, verse 18, Halfway through, show me your faith without the works. How could someone possibly do that? How could you reveal and prove a faith without doing something to prove it? You can't. And that's the argument. You can't show faith without works. He then responds and says, it's, it's easy. I will show you my faith by my works. One of these men has faith in isolation. He cannot show his faith. He cannot prove his faith. The other man has faith that is supported by works. Which one are you going to believe? The one who has the evidence. The one who has the evidence. If I said, I can do a backflip, and you said, okay, prove it. And, and Jake also said he can do a backflip, but he comes up and does one. But I was like, no, he can't. I can. He has the evidence, right? Like, it's duh. You can't show faith without works. Jake actually can do a backflip. Just ask him to do it later. It's really cool. You want to do it now? After. We'll do it after. You, you cannot show faith without works. So, James then says, I'll, I'll show you my faith by my works. Because faith without works is a dead faith. But he continues in that argument. His second point is the demons have faith without works. The demons have faith without works. Verse 19, he says, you believe that God is one? There's some more of this dripping sarcasm. You do well. The demons also believe. That's a, that's a sarcastic, funny, and horrifying statement. You, you believe in God? You believe that he's one? You have faith in God? Congratulations. You've arrived at the same level of faith as the demons. 
What's the difference between your faith and the faith of Satan or a demon? They believe in God. They believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. They believe that God created the world. What's the difference between your faith and the demons? Not only do believers know those facts, I think they know the theology behind those facts. They know what happened at the cross. They know that every man is sinful to a core. What's the difference? What the difference is between saving faith and the faith of a demon? It's that there's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. There's there's trust. There's repentance. There's change. Can I put it in James terminology? There's works. The, demon, the demons know all the truth that you know. But they've not been changed by it. They can't be changed by it. For you to know all that truth and not to be changed by it. For you to have faith without works. It's not saving faith. Because saving faith is always accompanied by supporting works. This can be summarized in this statement. Faith without works is demonic foolishness. Verse 20. He wraps up that logical argument by saying, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, you fool, that faith without works is useless? Would you continue claiming faith without works? You're you're a fool, he says. You're a fool that's no different than a demon. It's it's demonic foolishness. It's, It's ludicrous. It's not even logical for there to be faith without works. James continues with a third argument, and and we're just going to take a minute on this because this is actually where we're going to launch into next week in a different chapter. James continues with a historical argument. He continues with a historical argument. James is going to jump into two illustrations from the Old Testament that that are actual fact in in cases that happen in the Old Testament to show that, that, that saving faith has always been accompanied by supporting works. This is nothing new. This is how it's been from the beginning of time. So he makes that argument starting in, uh, in verse 21. Is not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. That's his his first Old Testament illustration, Abraham. Second, you see that a man is justified by works and not faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. 
So he's going to use two illustrations here, two Old Testament and this historical argument. He says, because they, the two people he's about to use, have saving faith. First of all, Abraham offered Isaac because he had saving faith. And second, Rahab protected Joshua's spies because she had saving faith. Those are two illustrations where, one, God called Abraham to offer up Isaac, his son, as a test. To see if Abraham would obey. Abraham believed. Abraham obeyed. Abraham trusted God. That faith, that belief, that trust was verified when Abraham took Isaac up on top of a mountain in, 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 in the Old Testament. In, in the book of Exodus, he takes him up. In the book of Genesis, he takes him up onto the top of a mountain. And he's ready to, to sacrifice his son like God told him to. And God stops him and says, I wanted to see if you would obey me. Abraham was not saved when he was about to sacrifice his son. That was a supporting work. That supporting work revealed that Abraham had saving faith. It's nothing new. This is how it's always been. Rahab was, was in, the, in, the, uh, in the city of Jericho and Joshua sent two spies and Rahab had heard about what the God of Israel had done, that he had parted the Red Sea, that he had conquered other nations and Abraham believed in this God of Israel. Then two spies sent by Joshua into the city of Jericho, they, they need a place to stay and Rahab brings them into her house. She hides them, she protects them, she sends them out in the right direction. Now that was all done because Rahab had saving faith how it's always been. Oh, and there are hundreds of more illustrations throughout history showing that saving faith is always accompanied by supporting works. And that's what we're going to look at next week. We're going to look in Hebrews chapter 11, where it is by faith that the heroes of the faith obeyed God. I want to conclude... This is kind of a summary of, of that historical argument. Saving faith has always been supported by works. This is nothing new. Saving faith has always been supported by works. So as we break to small groups, I want to give you a few points that you guys can be talking about and thinking about as we discuss this. Just a few concluding remarks. This text gives us a few points to be aware of. First, this text gives us points of evaluation. And second, this text gives us, sorry, this text gives us points of motivation. This text gives us points of evaluation, and this text gives us points of motivation. I want to be clear that we can all grow in these areas that we've been talking about tonight. But I hope that as you've seen this point of saving faith always being accompanied by supporting works, that there are places for you to evaluate in your life whether there is genuine saving faith there. Because you can see saving faith. So there is room for evaluation to say, can I see a saving faith in my life? Are there supporting works there? Some of you, as you're evaluating that, you'll find confirmation. I want to encourage some of you in this. That as you're looking for that internally, that, that you're saying, okay, is there saving faith there? That some of you may say yes. Yes. The answer can be yes. And I hope that that's true of you, that as you're evaluating, that you'll find confirmation. But some of you may find reason for concern. Some of you may look and say, I, I don't know if I see the supporting works that, that point to a saving faith. Talk to your small group leaders about that. Just, just ask them to help you evaluate. And then the second point, this text gives us points of motivation. 
Again, there's kind of two responses here. One would be motivation for repentance. I look and I don't see those supporting works. Then repent. Repent and turn. There's time to turn. But then also there's motivation for some of you who are seeing growth. There's motivation to press on. To keep growing. So find evaluation in this passage. And find motivation in this passage. This is not a passage that dooms all of us to hell. This is a passage that calls and encourages us to evaluate our lives and find motivation to press on and have a life that not only claims saving faith, but that that saving faith is accompanied by supporting works.